Welcome to the Contrast Church Podcast. Contrast is located in Grandview, Ohio, with the mission to help people be with Jesus, become like Him, and live out His mission together. For more information on attending our meetings, our missional communities, or giving, visit contrast.church. Creeks OG. We've got a couple of those in the house today. <laughs> um, we prayed for you guys before you even existed. So you're kind of like our church child. So it's really fun to be here. Um, just a little bit about myself since you guys don't know me. My background is in chemical engineering, um, but I spent the last 10 years in ministry. So that's a fun story for another time. Um, I just graduated in June uh, with my master's in theology from Fuller Seminary. Um, and I'm still figuring out what I want to be when I grow up, but I love to teach, so it's an honor to be here with you today. I've been married to Alex for the past three years. It's been a blast. Um, we love cooking and gardening and being outside, but we also are super nerds. So we love discussing theology, playing board games. We're a total D&D house. If you don't know what that is, talk to me later. Um, <laughs> we love analyzing films, especially from the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So. Um, like I said, super nerds. So since you all know that we are self-proclaimed nerds in the Canvas household, I feel like it's fitting to begin with this question. What do Schrodinger's cat, zombies, and the church in Sardis have in common? Um, well, one could argue that they're all simultaneously dead and alive, but I will not be discussing subatomic probabilities or how to survive a zombie invasion today. I will be talking about the church in Sardis. Before we do that, it's important to keep in mind the broad theme of Revelation. Um, this incredible text is John's revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the unveiling or the uncovering of who he is and how he operates in the midst of his church. So throughout John's revelation of Jesus, the church as a whole is exhorted to remain faithful to Christ in every age, no matter what. So perhaps it goes without saying but the intended audience for these letters are people who profess to be followers of Jesus. So if you find yourself here today or you're listening online and you're not in that boat, my hope is that you can see God in a different light and you can hear what he wants his church to look like. Um, it's not perfect. It's full of messy people who are trying to honor God but often mess it up in the process. But ultimately, God loves his people and his church and he does not give up on us, no matter how bleak it may look. The letter to Sardis reveals that Jesus loves to resurrect a dying church. Today we're learning about the church in Sardis in Revelation 3, 1 through 6. And so I like to refer to the scripture a lot. We'll bounce around, but first I just want to read through the text as a whole, um, and then we'll come back to it a little bit. So if you'll turn in your Bibles or turn on your phones, we're in Revelation 3. It's the very last book of the Bible. Just turn to the front, chapter 3. 1 through 6 says this. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this. I know your deeds, that you have a name that you are alive, and yet 
you are dead. Be constantly alert and strengthen the things that remain which were about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Then if you are not alert, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. The one who overcomes will be clothed the same way in white garments and I will not erase his name from the book of life and I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. The one who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. So you remember from previous sermons that John uses a ton of descriptive imagery in Revelation. So before we dig into kind of what those could mean, let's review some historical cultural context first. This will help us understand how the original audience would have understood this message. The church in Sardis was one of the most powerful cities of the ancient world. It was a key part of the Babylonian Empire. It was capital of the Kingdom of Lydia, which is now modern-day Turkey. And even though control of Sardis changed over the years, the city remained one of high status. Um, it was a city of immeasurable wealth. Sardis was the first city to create gold and silver coins. And since it was also along a major trade route from the Aegean coast, it was an ideal meeting point for the exchange of ideas, beliefs, customs, and knowledge. Excavations have uncovered an exceptionally large temple dedicated to Artemis. Um, Artemis was the patron Greek goddess believed to possess the special power of restoring the dead to life. Sarah, you can throw that picture up on the screen of the temple. Pretty impressive. So what's especially interesting about this and unique about this temple is that archaeologists determined it was gradually built over centuries, depending on who was in charge at the time. So this means that worship of Artemis was continuous despite power changes. So it's important to know in ancient cultures, people believed that there was a deity that was bound to their city, and they worshiped this deity to help keep them safe. So they believed that if the deity was happy and they were worshiped, the city was safe. But if the deity was unhappy with them, they would leave and let the city come under attack and be invaded or um, taken by military conquest. So my idea is that perhaps every military defeat that Sardis encountered reinvigorated their worship and their efforts to finish this temple so that Artis, Artemis would be appeased and she would be happy and hopefully keep them safe. However, the major reality of Sardis is that they resulted, their defeats resulted from a lack of, of vigilance, excuse me. Um, they believed their Acropolis to be impregnable and therefore they became lazy in their defenses. So not once, but twice in the history of Sardis, it was taken by stealth unexpectedly in the night. One scholar admits that by the Roman period, Sardis became a relic which lived on its ancient prestige. It had become a shadow of what it once was. So we have a city known for its former affluence and vitality, while simultaneously being known for its ignorant carelessness. You could say that the city had become a shell of what it once was. In a sense, it was dying. This is exactly what the church in Sardis is accused of as well. The remarkable parallels between the city and the church, I believe, are intentional here. I think John is using language and imagery 
that would have resonated deeply with his audience and perhaps eh, a little bit too close to home. And in a brilliant tongue-in-cheek way, Jesus contrasts his true power with the hollow power of their patron deity, Artemis. Only Jesus has the power to revive and bring the dead back to life. Jesus says, I know your deeds, that you have a name that you are alive, and yet you are dead. So before we discuss what a dying church looks like, I think it's important to consider the ideal thriving church that's depicted in Revelation. As Trey and Adam and others have pointed out in previous weeks, John is encouraging the churches in Asia Minor to resist the imperial cult, which would have encouraged or demanded worship of the emperor. Such resistance would have resulted in serious social and political consequences for the people in these churches. And even more so, John demanded the subversive and antagonistic witness to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Brian Blount, a minister and New Testament scholar, believes that John is asking the churches to unapologetically testify to Jesus' lordship in their own lives. He says this, Revelation craves witness as engaged, resistant, transformative activism that is willing to sacrifice everything in an effort to make the world over into a reality that responds to and operates from Jesus' role as ruler and savior of all. In other words, Jesus is Lord. Can I get a witness? So a thriving, Christ-honoring church depicted in Revelation is one that is engaged with the current socio-political realities, but does not capitulate to society's demands. The ideal living church is actively working to create an environment for Jesus to be worshiped unashamedly and invites an unbelieving world to consider him as their savior too. They are attentive to what God is doing in their midst, spiritually alert and responsive to the spirit. A living church functions as a compelling witness to the sovereignty of the almighty God, the incarnate Christ, and the ongoing power of the spirit in their midst. A witness so compelling that one's life is dramatically different from the world around it. A witness so compelling that people turn their heads in wonder and are inspired to worship God too. That's all. Not a small ask, right? We'll come back to this later, so hold on tight because hope is not lost. Jesus loves to resurrect dying churches. A dying church, on the other hand, is described in this letter to Sardis. They have the reputation that they are Christian, but in reality, they have compromised everything else. So they're only Christian in name, but not in their lives or their deeds. The dying church is spiritually asleep. They are not only apathetic in their worship, they have numbed themselves to God's presence. And instead, they've turned to worship things which offer immediate gratification. The dying church is a church which has abandoned the ongoing work of ministry and instead turns, uh, in a sense, they've given up. They've become complacent with where they are, no longer convicted by the Holy Spirit or living a life that is holy and set apart. They have simply become okay with their current state, settling into an existence which doesn't really honor Jesus. They adopt certain practices from their culture and think, there's nothing wrong with that. A dying church might think they're coasting on past successes, but they have mistaken their flatlining for a spiritual plateau. They have no pulse, no vibrancy, no response to God's spirit among them. 
A dying church is a church which no longer represents Christ. They're no longer functioning as an ambassador for God, but instead they have become consumed by the cultural demands around them, and they look just like everyone else. Like the fig tree, which Jesus curses in Mark, they look like they should produce fruit, but in reality, they are withering and dying on the inside. Jesus is not just heartbroken over a dying church. He is righteously angry. He detests it so much that he could obliterate it completely. But in his compassion and in his grace, he offers to bring it back to life instead. This is not something to be taken lightly. If I'm being honest, and ask anyone who knows me, I'm painfully honest, <laughs> this sounds very similar to me to the modern Western church. Not every church, Big C Church, so take it with a grain of salt. But overall, I fear that the modern Western church has become a lot like the church in Sardis. In attempts to be relevant to modern society, I think the Western church has conflated worldly tolerance with biblical grace. Worldly tolerance asks that we turn a blind eye, we embrace a subjective morality and an anything-goes mentality. Biblical grace, on the other hand, demands an awareness of our sinful nature so that we realize what a remarkable gift we have in the redemption of our sins. I fear that the modern church is dying because we have traded the beauty of the gospel for a cheap lie. I fear that the modern Western church has become incredibly self-absorbed, focusing all too often on ourselves, my needs, my reputation, my career, my finances. We have forgotten that we do not exist as a self-perpetuating machine to achieve our own Christian flavor of the American dream. But rather, we exist as Christ-dependent servants who live to make him known and to reconcile the world to God. I fear that the modern Western church looks so much more like a business, like a temple, like a market set up in the temple, which is concerned with profitability and commercialism instead of lives which have been authentically transformed by the power of the living God. My friends, I think that like the church in Sardis, the church in the West is guilty of being a lifeless, impotent shell of the church Jesus desires. We have convinced ourselves that we're doing church, but in reality, we've been lulled to sleep in our lack of spiritual vigilance. Almost a year ago exactly, the Taliban overtook Afghanistan. I remember praying fervently for the Afghani people who were being systematically raped, tortured, and killed. I pitied my Christian brothers and sisters who were fleeing for their lives and being persecuted beyond what I can even imagine. As I discussed these horrors with one of my friends, she pointed me to a podcast about the persecuted church in the Middle East. And I have never been so humbled, challenged, and jolted awake by a podcast. But let me tell you, this one got my attention. Um, in this podcast, Jenny Allen interviews a pastor who's discipling and training thousands of new believers in the Middle East. His wife, who was previously a sold-out Muslim extremist, she has one of the most incredible testimonies I've ever heard, she, she started a house church, and then that quickly planted five more house churches. They met on a missions trip, and after they got married, they moved back to the West, away from the danger and the persecution of her country. But after being here for only two months, or being in the West for two months, he noticed that she was really depressed. And so he asked her, why are you depressed? There are all these things. There's malls and supermarkets. There's everything you could want with a huge house and the latest car. What's going on? And she said this, 
the Western church is under a satanic lullaby, and I'm going to sleep. And every time I want to wake up, the lullaby goes faster. The Western church is under a satanic lullaby. This is coming from an ex-Muslim woman from one of the most hostile countries in the world. Even if she was risking her life every day in her homeland, she knew that her faith was vibrantly alive in pursuit of Christ. How many of us can say that? She knew that a sleepy faith was practically dead on arrival. She knew that her faith was most alive when she was actively resisting the cultural demands and unashamedly worshiping Christ. She knew that her faith was most alive when she was continuing God's work, not getting bogged down with the relentless circus of keeping up with the Joneses. She knew that there was more to Christianity than a comfortable air-conditioned Sunday morning service and the occasional reading of your Bible. I'm not suggesting that we all move to a Muslim country or that your faith is only alive when you risk becoming a martyr. But I am suggesting that we have no idea that we have been lulled to sleep. And we need the defibrillating power of the Holy Spirit to jolt us all awake. And thank God that Jesus loves to resurrect dying churches. This is the good news to anyone who finds himself in a dying church. Only Christ has the power to revive a dying church. Let's return to the text. Before Jesus says anything about the church in Sardis, he says something about himself. He says, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this. Here's some of that infamous imagery that we can maybe get hung up on or skip over in Revelation. But if we remember that this book is ultimately the revelation of who Jesus is, it helps us to keep some things straight. Um, just as Jesus talked in parables and preached in parables, the letters to the church intend to open the eyes of the true believer. Jesus wants our ears and our eyes keenly in tune with what he's doing. So let's dig in. Jesus is the one holding the seven stars and the seven spirits. Early in Revelation, John clarifies that the seven stars represent the angels of the seven churches. The angels could be thought of as the heavenly spiritual oversight of the physical earthly reality of the church. The sevenfold spirit is a little bit tricky, so bear with me for just a minute, okay? In Jewish understanding, the num numbers hold symbolic meaning in addition to their numerical meaning. So just like if I would use the number 100, it could mean 100 Big Macs, or it could mean 100 like on a test, or that, would, that experience was 100, it was perfect, right? So similarly, the number seven holds a symbolic meaning for God's fullness or God's totality. So when John says the seven spirits of God, what he means is not a literal numerical seven, but the fullness or totality of God's spirit. Okay, so Jesus is depicted holding the seven stars and the seven spirits. Does anybody remember that song? He's got the whole world in his... Okay, so as a kid, we probably imagined like massive hands, right, holding the world, but we understood that this meant God's in control. And so similarly, this picture of Jesus represents that he has complete and total sovereignty over the Holy Spirit and the spiritual realm. Jesus is in control even when everything else is wildly out of control. And he kindly reminds the church in Sardis of this before he addresses them. So with this in mind, we need to keep this at the forefront as we read the rest of this letter. And remember that Jesus is sovereign over his dying church 
and the total power of his spirit is available to them. He goes on to say, I know your deeds, that you have a name that you are alive, and yet you are dead. Basically, Jesus is saying, there's no place to hide. You may have been fooling yourselves into thinking that you're this thriving, vibrant church, but I can see through that. You're spiritually asleep, dying from the inside out. But guess what? I'm here to help. He then gives three distinct commands. He says, be constantly alert, strengthen what remains and is dying, and remember and repent. Just as the city of Sardis had become complacent, lazy, and careless in defending their city, Jesus draws a parallel to the church here in their spiritual vigilance. And in his sovereign power, he is the one with the power to wake us from our slumber, to resuscitate a dying church, and to renew obedience to him. Jesus is basically saying, this is your wake-up call. You're in a bad state, and it's time to get to work. You call yourselves Christians, but you look like everyone else. Let's roll up our sleeves and continue doing what I have commanded you to do. Remember that I have reconciled you to God and invited you to reconcile others to God too. It's time to turn from your sin once and for all and be obedient people dependent on my power because on your own, you are dead. Only Christ has the power to revive a dying church. Just like Old Testament prophecy, the command for remembrance and repentance comes with a solemn warning of divine judgment. Jesus says, then if you are not alert, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. Oftentimes, I think when we read stuff like this, we're like, ooh, that's a bit harsh, isn't it, Jesus? But I actually think this is God's grace. He warns us of impending consequences that we ultimately bring upon ourselves. He's saying, hey, you have a choice, and you need to know that these choices have consequences. Here's what they are. Just as the city of Sardis was overtaken unexpectedly in the night, so too will God's judgment be swift and unexpected. The standards he has for his church are incredibly high, but he's allowed to do that because it's his church and not ours. In light of that, the next half of the letter is a promise of what is to come if the church responds to Jesus' offer for help. Christ will redeem and honor those who represent his name. Jesus says, but you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who overcomes will be clothed in the same way, in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. The one who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus acknowledges that there are still a few righteous people in the church. It may be dead, but as Miracle Max would say, it's only mostly dead. Um, and there's hope for those who continue to honor him. Even if the rest of the church has fallen asleep in spiritual complacency, the faithful few who represent him and honor him will be justified before God himself. The imagery of clean white linens indicates that there were a few believers who had not contaminated themselves with the pagan culture. They remained true to Jesus and to Jesus alone. They didn't dabble in the cultural and religious smorgasbord around them, but remained holy, set-apart people of God, devoted to worshiping him. Their effort to live a life honoring to God was not easy, and Jesus recognizes this. 
Jesus reassures them that they have a special status in the kingdom of God. Even if their worldly status has suffered because of their allegiance to him, they are considered worthy in his sight and are promised three things. They will walk with Jesus fully justified and purified. Two, their name will be written in the book of life, and this is beyond contestation. And the third thing is that Jesus will represent them to God himself and the heavenly council. Jesus reminds the church in Sardis that genuine believers are not nominally Christian. They don't just say they're a Christian, but genuine believers confess unapologetically and likely suffer persecution and ridicule as a result. Genuine, fully alive believers represent Christ in every aspect of their lives. And Jesus promises that he will redeem and honor those who represent his name. Jesus loves to save his church. And he is truly the only one who can bring a dying church back to life. And in order to do so, he needs our active, attentive obedience. We must be constantly alert, listening for his voice, and be ready to do whatever he asks of us. We must posture ourselves so that we can hear him and honor him. Eugene Peterson, one of my favorite authors, puts it this way. God will jar us out of our lethargy. Get us to live on the alert. Open our eyes to the burning bush and the fiery chariots. Open our ears to the hard steel promises and commands of Christ. Banish boredom from the gospel. Lift up our heads. Enlarge our hearts. I love that. This is what Jesus wants for his church. And it's always easier said than done, right? So, how do we do this? How do we know if we're spiritually dead? And if we are, how do we allow Jesus to revive us? First of all, if you're sitting there asking those questions, I can guarantee you're not spiritually dead. Someone who's spiritually dead honestly doesn't care. Or they hear this and they think, well, I'm fine, I do these things, and I'm a pretty good person, so I'm good. But Jesus says otherwise, and it's his standards we must hold ourselves to, not our own. So here are some symptoms that you might be spiritually dead. Your life looks exactly like the decaying culture we live in. No one could say you're a Christian just by looking at your life. You consider yourself a Christian, but you're also totally okay with that sin you keep returning to. After all, Jesus knows we're not perfect, right? The things you, you're supposed to care about or be convicted about, eh, don't really bother you or motivate you. You might be spiritually dead if you are more concerned with what people around you think rather than what God thinks. You might be spiritually dead if you hear this message and you think, that's too extreme. Maybe like Sardis, you're guilty of repeating the failures of your country. If you look at those, and you see echoes of that in your own personal life, but you think it's not nearly as bad, you're spiritually dead. So for those of us who long to be attentive to Jesus, who know we are dying, but we cannot pull ourselves out of our spiritual apathy, what do we do? What if we feel unmotivated, and we are just going through the motions? I think confession is a great place to start. Let God know that you know you're dead and that you need his power to revive that which is unfinished and dying in your life. Something amazing happens when we confess our sinful state contrasted with God's power. We receive. I have learned that I cannot humbly receive anything God has for me until I admit that I am a hot mess and I need his help. So start there. Maybe during today's message, something stood out to you 
or made you uncomfortable and you cannot stop thinking about it. It could be something you've done or something you've left undone. And the spirit is gently nudging you to do something. What's keeping you from doing it? Is there something that demands more of your time, energy, finances, and allegiance more than Jesus? What would it look like for your life to shift so that everything comes second to Christ? After that, make listening a spiritual discipline in your life. And I know this is so hard in today's culture, but we can never hear God's voice if we don't silence our hearts and our minds and the cacophony of sound that's around us all the time. As you grow accustomed to hearing God's voice, respond in obedience. And you'll know it's his voice because it sounds like scripture, it points you back to God, and it gives you peace. So as we wrap up our time together, I think the best thing I can leave you with is time to reflect and hear from the Lord yourselves. Because whatever God has to say to you is infinitely more important than anything else I can say. So we're going to have a time of reflection, and then I'll come back up to introduce communion. But I'd love for you just to pray and, and consider these questions and allow God to speak to your heart. Which aspects of my faith have become mechanical or uninspired? How can I invite Christ to revive those dying parts of my faith? How can I create a space to be alert and attentive to Jesus' voice in my life? How can I live as a faithful witness to Christ in a culture that is primarily concerned with making a name? Thank you for listening to the Contrast Church Podcast. To learn more about us and how you can be a part of it, visit contrast.church.